beginning of this passage in verse 10, where he reminds him, you, however, have followed, and here it sounds a bit braggadocious, doesn't it? You've followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my practice, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to be at Antioch. And he goes on from there. But it's interesting how often Paul uses the word my in that section of Scripture. Because again, I would, uh, I would submit to you that what Paul is doing is he's, he's uh, setting the stage for uh, Timothy understanding that mentorship is important and that Timothy has been the benefactor of mentorship. And because none of these things uh, Paul emphasized either come easily to us, that shows some of the importance of the act of mentorship. None of those things, as I said, come easily to us because godly conduct is certainly not something that comes easy to us. Why? Because we're natural men who are sinful in nature. And uh, we need godly goals, as Paul points out, that are tempered with or by godly direction. Does that come actually easily to us? We can't talk this morning. No, it does not. Do we suffer naturally and easily? Is that something that we desire to do or that we, uh, that we um, are, are able to bear up under easily? No, our, our natural inclination is always to get out of the pressure that we're under to avoid persecution. Do we love naturally and easily? Sure, we love to love the lovely, don't we? People who are like us, people who we, uh, uh, that we associate with, people that we have an affinity for, we have no problem loving them. But you'll recall, in Scripture it even tells us to love our enemies. That's not easy, is it? That's, that's the kind of love that Paul is, is, uh, is able to make known to him. So the value of a mentorship is to gently and sometimes not so gently help direct us back to a correct path. Because left to our own devices, we'll allow errors to creep into our thinking and to our actions and to our very character. Maybe that bad thinking and improper actions or worse than that will lead to bad theology. So a mentor is an extra set of eyes and ears who have experience and a different perspective than we do and one that hopefully has been more mature and tempered more uh, maturely in God's Word. To illustrate that, um, when I started out from college as a young carpenter, relatively quickly, um, I kind of moved up. I went from not knowing much more than which end of the nail to hit to, to being asked to do uh, layout of walls and all of the things that uh, go into, go into a, uh, a house because we happen to be doing residential uh, construction. So the interesting thing of all of that was, you know, you get handed a set of blueprints and it's really, really important that everything gets put where it's supposed to be. And not only that the doors and windows are where they're supposed to be, but also that supporting pieces of those elements are exactly where they're supposed to be. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to get too deep into the weeds on construction uh, techniques or anything like that. And there's a point to this. One of the things when I was learning to lay out um, that I was taught by someone else who was maybe a little bit more experienced than I, but 
didn't really have the acumen. He he hadn't been asked to lay out, but he seemed to know what he was talking about. And he gave me a little shortcut that seemed at the time like it'd probably be a pretty good idea. So his shortcut was, rather than, uh, because normally layout is a two-step process, his, his shortcut was, let's just skip to the second part, and we would mark everything with a, with a framing square. You just kinda, um, I'm going to go ahead here. And you can see one up there in the corner. So you could just kind of walk that down the length of whatever it was that you were marking for where the, whether it was studs or joists or whatever uh, needed to be placed and not deal with having to do a two-step process to, to lay things out. That seemed like a good idea until I, two things happened. One was I saw in practice what the second thing happened uh, that illuminated it in different light for me was. And that was a more experienced carpenter, the person who really was teaching me, more so than this other gentleman, pointed out to me that if you make an error with the framing square as you're going down the length of whatever it is that you're marking, and it's a long length of whether it's wall or floor or anything like that, and then you make another error and another error, they can all be very small, but by the time you get down a length of wall or floor or anything like that, you can be inches off. And the problem with that is, not only does it make it look wonky when everything is put together, but all of our, all of our uh, buildings are now designed to be built with things that are dimensionally pre-made for you, like sheet goods. Suddenly, they no longer fit. And even more importantly, it really makes it an unfortunate set of circumstances for those who come behind who have to do work and try to cover up what you misapplied. So the point of it all was that the better way was that there had to be a corner that was chosen, and then there was a, a consistent, you know, measurable, in this case, tape measure, that would then help you to consistently lay out those spacings so that you could go back and mark everything. His mentorship in my career as a uh, layout person in, in a, on a construction crew was critical so that everything ended up in the correct places and, and all of, uh, all of the uh, bearing loads correctly lined up and all of the sheet goods and all of the things later that would come, you know, drywall, everything, would, could correctly be applied uh, to make a good, square, straight building. A little bit of error can really, really throw things off. Keep that in mind as we go forward and how important and critical a mentor and their help can be. Not just to make things better, but to make them correct. So let's look again at what Paul is communicating to Timothy. And in verse 10 and 11, we find that um, he reminds Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, and we went through that whole thing, my aim, my life in faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And there's an important phrase that, that, uh, that uh, begins to transition for Paul in that whole list of things. He ends with, after reminding him about his experiences at Antioch, at um, Iconium, and at Lystra, that he faced persecutions. And he reminds him that he endured, but more importantly, from them all the Lord rescued him. 
So in the life of a Christian, it's important for us to know, and Paul's pointing out to him as his mentor, and he's going, as was pointed out even in the earlier passages from last week, there are going to be persecutions that come. There are going to be trials that come your way. And yes, we need to endure, and Paul modeled that endurance for him. But he also points out to him that the most important point of all was that the Lord rescued him. Very important point. Why? Because it's so easy for us to begin to take credit for what God has done. And as a mentor, it was critical that Paul point that out to Timothy. Now the question becomes, you know, but it becomes evident even from what Paul's pointing out here in verse 10 and 11, that Paul had mentored Timothy predominantly by spending time with him. And he allowed Timothy to observe his conduct under pressure in ministry, didn't he? He, he also showed him what his teaching aims were as he, was, uh, as he was sharing the word and his focus and how that was you know, like a laser beam directed on God and God's gospel. So his experience, or he had experienced Paul's trials in ministry and he had seen Paul exhibit all those things that he mentioned, the patience, so that Timothy could be an imitator of Paul's walk with Christ. So that's why, even though it sounded so braggadocious of Paul to say, follow, you know, um, you know that you've, you've followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, what he's saying is that all of those things were propelled by God's direction and by God's, um, and, and by God's rescuing Paul from those pressure situations because he knows that, the, that, those, um, that, that those trials are going to come when we're in ministry. And he knows it's not easy to, uh, to persevere through all of that. Because he knows that teaching has to be conducted with a purpose. So a mentor can help uh, each of us to be a more effective teacher and, and uh, communicator of God's Word and help us to hold fast to the truth. And it's important because through their mentorship, it will help us avoid error, which again, goes back to my illustration, because we can compound errors, can't we, if we don't see them early on in what we're doing. And through that, Paul is, is admonishing Timothy and us that we need to keep the main thing the main thing to keep us from getting caught up as we you know, are so easily you know, led to do in empty arguments, as the Bible says, of genealogies and the minutiae that can even distract us from the central task at hand. And that central task is always what? It's to introduce Christ to all those that we come in contact with and Him crucified to pay the penalty for our sin so that we might have the eternal um, salvation and, uh, and a home with him in heaven. So again, I remind you that a godly mentor will exhibit the character that we need to emulate. And, that, and that's a character of faith. And when Paul says faith here, is he is more clearly understood to be meaning faithfulness, as in faithfulness referenced in Romans 3.3. I'm going to go ahead and turn there for us. So in Romans 3.3, 3, it, it was written, what is uh, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And it goes on in, in four, by no means. Let God be true. And though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. 
So it's just critical that, that uh, we understand faithfulness and that how that can change everything that we do. And as well, there's a fruitfulness as a, in the Spirit that's uh, pointed out in Galatians 5.22, where God's Word says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and against such there is no law. Those things are critical to know and to reference as we, you know, as we endeavor to be faithful servants of God. And another virtue that, uh, that Paul points out and reminds Timothy of is his patience. And the Greek word rendered here for patience is not the usual word translated for patience, or so I'm told by the Bible scholars. Uh, this word was, has added meaning or weight, and the added uh, weight and meaning it has is one of steadfastness and long-suffering. Critical because that's not what's common or natural for us, is it? To, uh, to, to, um, to bear up under and be long-suffering. And then Paul reminds them that the greatest virtue is love. And just so we're clear, um, the love that's mentioned here is the word agape, which is the self-sacrificing godly love, the most perfect and unselfish love that there is. And it's, and it's of course, been personified and modeled by God himself through Jesus Christ because it's God's very nature to be love. And that uh, God is love, as it, and that God being love is uh, related to us in 1 John 4, 7, which is just a few few books back from Second uh, Timothy, where it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is the love of God, was, and this is the love of God was made in, I think I might have misprinted that. I'll go to the actual Bible. There we go. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins." Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Paul then reminds Timothy that he modeled perseverance for him, as in patience in the circumstances of life, as opposed to the earlier uh, steadfastness in dealing with people. The connotation, I'm to understand from the Greek scholars, is better understood to mean endurance in trying circumstances. So again, we have endurance coming up that we need to persevere and keep, stay with um, the, the, uh, the ministry that God gives us. And as a good mentor, Paul also shows and, and he exhibits all those traits and characteristics in the face of sufferings and persecutions for Timothy. And he reminds him that those persecutions and sufferings will come. 
Paul had persecuted, and, and Paul knew this in a, in a clear way that most of us hopefully never will. If you'll recall from Paul's past, Paul had actually begun as a persecutor of, of Christians. He had had men and women thrown into prison, and he was even there at the stoning of Stephen. And then for Paul, the tables turned, and he suffered many things for the gospel and for the sake of its spread. And you can read, I'm not gonna, we're not going to turn there today, but you can read all about those in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 27, and many other places. So back to our text in uh, Timothy 3. We read in uh, verses 12 and 13, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, as we were just talking about. And, and this again springboards off of last week's message, where in 13 it says, While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So, again, uh, if, as we think about mentorship, mentors are critical. But what does, uh, as we now are transitioning into the next portion of, of this uh, passage, but we don't want to leave behind the mentorship idea too quickly, uh, and uh, it'll all tie together more in a minute here. Mentors are critical, but what does Christian mentoring look like? And the answer is, answer is it comes in many different forms and fashions. Um, I think sometimes we get too hung up on trying to make it something more formal than it needs to be, though I will say that at its core, there needs to be God's Word infused in it and, and um, it's similar to, I think, in our, uh, in our adult discipleship this, this morning when it was uh, quoted. Uh, now I just forgot who it was that, uh, that, that the um, theologian was that said it, to uh, you know, preach the gospel continually and, if, and when necessary, use words. Uh, you know, and I would say, yes, we do need to use words, and we use to, need to make sure that it's God's word. Um, but... The, uh, it, it's it's uh, so important for us to have um, have mentorship, and an, off, an awful lot of being mentored can just be spending time with people. I think back uh, as a parent, an awful lot of our uh, parenting is really mentorship, where you're spending time with your children, showing them how to live, and in a godly context, or you know, trying to create little Christians, we need to be showing and speaking. How, how, to, uh, how to persevere through the trials of life, how to um, respond to what happens in life with a Christ-like, um, uh, not, not just uh, attitude, but also with, um, with the wisdom that comes from knowing God's Word as well. And that's something that, I, as I think back on my own life, I've seen so many of people, even here, that have, through their mentoring, have affected my life in ways that, uh, that propelled me to be the man that I am today. People, I, I wouldn't do any music if it wasn't for someone taking me aside and saying, hey, um, this is something that I think that you could potentially do. And uh, had, had never sung or done anything before. But that person spent time with me, and it wasn't my wife, although she was a portion of that too. And, and, uh, and then that just became a springboard to other things where men in the church here as well took me aside, and, they, and uh, mentors were patient with me when I had um, theological leanings or thoughts that weren't consistent with Scripture and gently rebuked or reproved me, as we're going to learn about, 
to be, uh, to, to be more consistent and more accurate with what I believed. Years and years of following the preaching that, uh, that came from this pulpit also is another form of mentorship because you have to hear God's word in order to be able to, uh, to, to uh, live it. And while it's important for us to read it, critically important for us to read God's word, often if we don't have someone to look to, we can again you know, go off in error and think our own way through something and not rely on the Holy Spirit where a mentor can again come alongside and point out those little errors or just to be able to help guide and direct us. So everyone needs mentorship and we need to, we need to keep that in mind and that's what, uh, that's what Paul is pointing out to Timothy. As I said, Paul had done this for Timothy. He spent time with him. He had done all, all those things. But now we come to, Paul is giving the, kind of we're moving into the why uh, that Paul gives to Timothy and it, and it, after, back in uh, verse 11. He says, the Lord rescued me. And we often trivial, trivialize that and we forget about the benevolent mercy and grace that's poured out on us and we overlook the reality that God takes care of us. And he takes care of us so often and so well that we can even, again, forcing error into our, into our own lives, we can begin to think that it was just because of our wits, our strength, or even worse, just good fortune. And that can then lead us to maybe having an Elijah moment where we're you know, under the juniper tree and we don't even recognize that the Lord is our rescuer. Or uh, situations like Paul pointed out to Timothy where he you know, he uh, was where he had the difficulties in uh, in the three cities that he mentioned, and this none of this should come as a surprise to us that we would you know step off into error because of persecution and that that pressure could lead us to uh, to to need a mentor, because the persecution was foretold and and pointed out in so many different areas. One of which is in John chapter 15, where Jesus tells us, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were in the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I'm sorry, yeah, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So we have to recognize, and a mentor will help us do that, we're not, that we're not getting better, and our situation is not getting better. And I would r remind you that any relief of pressure and persecution is only going to be temporary. Jesus didn't say we'd only be hated for a season. He just said simply and directly that they hate me, they'll hate you. But remember, and, uh, and it's critical that we remember, that we should be hated for our faith, for our Christ-like attributes and character. Um, we shouldn't be offensive for being offensive, but we should let the gospel be the offending uh, message, not our words and deeds. So we need to be, as I said, cautious about being offensive, but rather just let the, let the gospel speak uh, for us 
because we need to remember that we're all imperfect image bearers and, uh, and we need to just be directing everyone to the truth and power of the gospel. And now Paul transitions away from his character and his ministry and his persecutions that were suffered while mentoring Timothy to the source of his strength, which he also points out to Timothy is the foundation of his faith. He reminds Timothy here that evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse. And how, how our being reviled for the sake of the gospel uh, will not be removed while this is a reality. They can't and they won't end. The evil one is still out there on the loose and he's influencing our world and he's twisting the words of scripture to, uh, to confuse us and, and to confuse the world to be led astray from the truth of God's word. Paul reminds Timothy in verses 14 and 15, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And uh, so when he's talking about truth there, <laughs> and how he learned from from. Uh, uh, from from being a child, he's talking about how critical mentorship was in Timothy, Timothy's life even before Paul came on the scene because he's pointing back to Timothy's mother and grandmother who were well known to be uh, mentors of Timothy from a, from a little boy on. As a matter of fact, that's pointed out in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 1, verses 3 through six, which, which is back where we had started, where uh, we'll remind you, it says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that, uh, that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So he, he tells him that he's been given a gift from God there, and he's reminding him here that that gift was, uh, was matured through, uh, through even, th even further mentorship. And then he reminds him of the practical benefits and outcomes of all of that. That it's something that he learned from his youth. And that the most practical thing of it all is that it would make him wise for salvation. But that, that, that salvation comes through faith in Christ Jesus. And he reminds him also that being made wise in Christ Jesus is confounding to the world. Make no mistake, the world sees salvation in Christ as foolishness. Because as a matter of fact, we read in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verses uh, 23, 26 through 31, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. So, Paul, Paul uh, identifies to Timothy that clearly the conduit for truth and his source of faith 
is the Word of God, the Word of God that he had been uh, taught from a child on. And that through that, and through faith in Christ alone, he would be made wise and be able to recognize and to exhibit godliness, faith, mercy, love, patience, peace, joy, long-suffering, and that he would know what they looked like so that he'd be able to become a mentor for those he would teach. And finally, Paul points Timothy back, and us back, to the wellspring of our faith, to the foundation of our faith, in that wisdom-giving scripture and the knowledge of godliness that helps us and is critical for identifying the cornerstone of our faith. And that cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Paul clearly identifies that same source of knowledge and the clear and true conduit to be Scripture. And we read in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we have here the instruction manual, the blueprint to build the best life that we can live on the rock of Jesus Christ. Do you believe it? And not because I said so, but rather because all Scripture is breathed out by God. And if it's all breathed out by God, then we shouldn't have trouble uh, deciding that it is profitable. And if we don't believe it, are we really saying that we're the judge of what's truth and we're elevating ourselves to, uh, to the same level or even a higher level than God himself. That's a scary and unthinkable notion and a, and a very dangerous place to put ourselves, isn't it? Thankfully, there's good reason, though, that we can have faith in every word of Scripture. And uh, it, it's, it's something that's been proven through historical reference and uh, that we don't have time to go into all of it, but just a couple of things that I'll point out was one was the city of Tyre's destruction um, that was uh, brought out by Ezekiel, prophesied in Ezekiel, happened just as he said. Isaiah and Jeremiah's uh, uh, predictions of the, about the destruction of Babylon are another thing that has historically been proven to be true. And on and on we could go. I say all that to warn you because there's, a, there's a, a movement in our world right now where there are secular scholars, especially, and, and uh, some others as well, but especially secular scholars, scholars that have been pointing to what they say are misspellings or misinterpretations of spellings of words in the Bible, among other things, to say, you know, you, we can't trust it, that it's not inerrant. And, and we believe here at Memorial that it is in its original manuscripts, inerrant. Now that doesn't mean there can't be something that was, uh, that was misspelled or something, but, but when they point out things that are suddenly discovered newly when we've got just a multitude of manuscripts that the scholars have gone through and not found anything lacking in the canon of Scripture, it becomes clear what the aim and focus of those people is, and that's to, to uh, shake the faith of those who aren't firm in their faith. And I point all this out to remind us that we need to be careful to spend time in God's Word so that we're not shaken by those things, as well as to find a mentor to, to study with and to uh, spend time with and or to ask those questions of when we have them come up in our minds. Because if, they, if we allow those doubts to raise up in our minds and we start, um, we start removing parts of Scripture as though it's not the inerrant Word of God, 
we'll find ourselves very quickly compounding errors in our thinking and in our theology. I still remember, uh, uh, and I'm not going to do it with my Bible, but I still remember Bob Booth teaching the Iwana kids uh, about this very subject where you know, he went through and, and he, he, he had, when he was uh, going to school at Moody, had taken an old Bible, or I think it was Bob that did it anyway, and he was down in the streets of Chicago, and he would say, hey, you know, do, you, do you agree with Scripture? And people would say, no, I don't. And he'd say, well, what don't you agree with? And he would turn to a passage. And he'd say, do you, do you agree with this? And he'd say, you, know, you shouldn't, shouldn't do this. Oh, no, no, I don't agree with that. Oh, that's okay then. We'll just tear that out and just keep you know, doing that for the illustrative purpose of telling people when it's all said and done, if we just tear out all the things that we say we don't believe in, that we don't think that that's truth, at the end of the day, we've just got the gospel according to me. And that's no gospel at all. And it's no, no, uh, no truth of God's word either. So as I said, there's good, we can have uh, faith that our scriptures are true and that they're, uh, that, that they're the, the inerrant word of God. And all scripture is profitable, he points out to Timothy, which means useful sufficient, it's effective, it's beneficial, and it's productive for us. And it's useful for what? For teaching, which is divine instruction, so that we can know the will and ways of God, and so that we can apply this to become wise, and to become wise not in a worldly sense, but wise in in, uh, who God is and who we are to be in God's world. Proverbs 3, 5 reads, "'Trust in the Lord with your whole heart, and do not lean on your own understanding.'" In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And scripture is profitable for reproof. This brings the concept of rebuking our misbehavior, illuminating any false teaching where we might cling. And God's scripture also reveals our wicked ways and our natural sinful selves. And the reproof or rebuke uses God's word to cut that away from our lives, leaving only his truth to build our lives on. And the scriptures are also, he points out in here, uh, useful for correction. And while this might sound a lot like reproof, the connotation is more positive because it's a course correction. It's a restoration that occurs through um, through that correction, meaning restored to God. Think of... Uh, 3 John 1.9, where it reads, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the kind of correction that Scripture brings. And finally, Paul reminds Timothy that the Scriptures are also critically helpful for training in in righteousness, which is the idea of correcting or disciplining to the positive and desirable standard. Correcting godliness is to be built up and to be more Christ-like. So the the focus of the scriptures is to bring us back to the constant, solid starting point. And uh, the point of that doesn't move. Think back to my illustration of of a layout. As I said, in in our carpentry, I learned that we were supposed to pick a corner. And that was the corner where all uh, all, uh, layout began. Now think of scripture, and and, uh, where is that mentioned we're supposed to build our lives on the rock, but even more important, who was the stone, the cornerstone, the stone that was rejected? It was Jesus. And what's the measure that we're supposed to use to accurately you know, lay out our lives and to live our lives? 
in a manner and fashion that's pleasing to God, it's the Word of God. And a mentor can, again, help us to navigate those waters and to measure out our lives and to set our course so that we end up building, not on sinking sand, but on Jesus and his, uh, and his foundation that he um, laid, the, the foundations of which he laid uh, on the finished work of the cross.